And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, April 24th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Darris Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, a lawsuit against the Air Force on behalf of the deaf and hard of hearing. Plus, USAID reinforces its commitment to the rule of law overseas. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Defense Department has been under-investing in facility upkeep for years, and so its maintenance backlog is growing each year. DOD now says it's rolling out new tools that won't necessarily solve that problem, but they will help officials make better decisions on where to spend the dollars they do get. We get details from Federal News Network's Jared Serbu. According to the Government Accountability Office, the department has a maintenance backlog of at least $137 billion. But that figure is almost certainly an undercount. For one thing, it's based on 2020 data. For another, it doesn't include the facilities that are already past their useful lifespans. And an estimated 30% of the department's facilities fall into that category. One reason the problem is getting worse is that the department is consistently under-budgeted for what its own facility sustainment model says is needed to keep its structures in good working order. And since funding has proven to be a difficult challenge, officials say they're now pivoting to a new model, focusing their limited sustainment dollars on the facilities that matter most. Brendan Owens is the Assistant Secretary of Defense for Energy, Installations, and Environment. So the sustainment management system that we are developing and will be implementing is, is, is something that I think the, the Marines have done a very good job of understanding, that facilities optimization is not a total pounds of dollars game. It's much more about how we look at recapitalization over time and then at a high level making sure that we have the sustainment of facilities so that the degradation doesn't begin. The new sustainment management system isn't planned to be fully in place until 2026, but the department is asking Congress for more funding this year to speed up its development. Officials say the biggest change is managing and prioritizing DOD's facility sustainment dollars with more granular data rather than treating all buildings equally in one big portfolio. We have taken an approach that the way that we should sustain our facilities is by calculating the total number of dollars that's required based on a percentage of the plant replacement value. While it might have served DOD uh, in the past, I don't think that's a, a way ahead that's sustainable. We've got a backlog that is paralyzingly large, and, and we have a, a method of calculating funding that is not aligned with the way that buildings fail, because buildings don't fail linearly. They fail in sort of episodic functions over the course of time in a downward degradation. And if you allow that degradation to begin, you never get those buildings back up to what they were or what they should have been again uh, without a major recapitalization. And that's not a linear thing. It's a it's a capital reinvestment strategy. The Air Force has already started some initial efforts to move to a more targeted, prioritized approach to how it spends its facility sustainment, restoration, and modernization dollars. That service created a new infrastructure investment strategy in 2019 and expects to update it this year. Ravi Chaudhry, the Assistant Secretary of the Air Force for Energy Installations and Environment, says the strategy aims to prioritize spending that most directly impacts a given installation's primary mission and give local commanders more discretion over infrastructure projects. And what that does is going to take a look at 
or what our right size is going to be and what type of facilities need to go away to scale and start getting at this maintenance issue. Uh, one, one of the areas that I, I want to focus in on, I can give you an example of, is in our unaccompanied housing. And we've had a lot of discussion on that. Um, but currently, we, we have launched a, a dormitory master plan to take a look at what, what our program schedule is going to be to do that. And, and what we found when we did that is that we need to invest a lot more. Not hard to uh, discern. Uh, but right now, we're targeting uh, to correct that $1.7 billion uh, in FSRM from 20, FY22 to 26, and that's a fourfold increase. So uh, we, we've identified it, characterized it, and now we're putting in the right investments to get us to where we need to be. Meanwhile, the Marine Corps' early work, using what that service calls its readiness maximization tool, is focused on driving maintenance dollars toward what officials deem to be their most important facilities. The service started implementing that strategy at the beginning of this fiscal year, says Meredith Berger, the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Installations, Energy, and Environment. What it does is it looks at the whole pile of the FSRM uh, money that is there and allows, um, puts a little money um, towards sustainment where it will actually sustain, allowing more money to go towards the restoration and modernization parts of that uh, pile of funding Mm -hmm. so that there's more good money going towards good, so towards the facilities that count uh, more, as my colleagues were talking about. Um, This is a tool that we are looking at, learning from it. It is a tool that informs the way the decisions are made, um, but it will help us as we think about the 30-year infrastructure plan uh, to make sure that we are aligning the best dollars in the best places, so we're putting those appropriate dollars where they count, um, and then aligning risk, mission assurance, all of the other considerations so that we have a holistic approach that anticipates what we need in this in this look like we would fund another platform. GAO acknowledges that adequately funding upkeep for DOD facilities is a massive challenge, partly because of the sheer size of the portfolio. The department estimates it owns 668,000 facilities around the world, with a total plant replacement value of $1.8 trillion. But GAO's Elizabeth Field says more data-driven prioritization would certainly help matters. When we conducted our review of DOD's deferred maintenance backlog, we found that the facilities that are so often the first to lose out on funding are the ones most directly tied to quality of life. Barracks, where junior enlisted service members live, for example, or child care centers. The effects of this are clear. In discussion groups we have held at military installations around the country, Service members have consistently told us that the condition of their housing, whether government-owned or privatized, impacts their perception of the military and, in some cases, their decision on whether to re-enlist. As one young soldier said to us, if we get the bare minimum in the barracks, the Army will get the bare minimum from us. The readiness implications of this problem are, I think, obvious. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, USAID reinforces its commitment to the rule of law overseas. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The U.S. Agency for International Development has updated its policy for promoting the rule of law in countries where the agency operates. The new approach emphasizes what USAID calls people-centered justice. Here with what this is all about, the team lead for justice, human rights, and security, Miranda Jolicure. Ms. Jolicure, good to have you on. Great, Tom. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here today and talk about USAID's 
new policy. So USAID for a long time has promoted rule of law overseas through our missions and our foreign service officers. I'm actually a foreign service officer that's come back to Washington after being overseas for about 11 years. We work very closely with our local staff called Foreign Service Nationals, and we develop country strategies that determine what the needs are through analyses and engagement with our partner country government and civil society. I think we've developed this, our new rule of law policy, to really affirm USAID's commitment to rule of law globally as essential to democratic governance and sustainable development. Sure. And there is a release out stating that you have updated the policy. So what's new and different now relative to the way you did it before? Actually, this is our first ever rule of law policy. USAID did not have a rule of law policy before. We had a democracy, human rights and governance policy This is, in fact, the U.S. government's first policy on rule of law assistance. And we recognize that, you know, as I said, rule of law is essential. We see rising threats to the rule of law across the globe. And this importantly shifts our efforts to people-centered justice. And this is evolving evidence in the rule of law field of what is needed to close a 5.1 billion global justice gap. So we're looking at about 60% of people uh, globally that do not have their justice needs met. And we know that that is a threat for democracy. Well, is USAID trying to promote this person-centered justice through the programs it would be doing otherwise in a country? Or is there a new channel of aid in different countries to help them develop a justice system that delivers what you would call, you know, the personal justice that people require? So people-centered justice. For decades, USAID has been doing rule of law work. And actually, in the development of this policy, we reviewed about 340 of our rule of law programs in 83 of the countries where we've worked. And what we realized while we've been doing pieces of what we call people-centered justice that really focus the reform and justice systems on people's needs Uh, that we didn't have an approach that really looked at it systematically to reform systems from people's needs. So maybe if I could give an example that would help listeners. If you look at medical health needs, you likely look at the needs of those that have health problems. You don't immediately go to building building hospitals or just reforming systems without that information. And so really, we're trying to transform what we do by using data and information and engagement with people to understand those needs to reform systems. And that changes not reforming a system and having a justice institution improve as an end in and of itself, but how are we actually meeting outcomes by delivering what people need? Because you're operating in foreign countries, in a sense, at their pleasure and permission. How do you know they want USAID or anybody from the United States telling them how to deliver their justice systems? That's a great point. And I think for us, what's really important is that we work in partnership with the countries where we work. So we're talking about how we engage with host country governments, how we introduce this process of collecting data and engaging with people on their wants and justice needs. 
and really demonstrating that this is often a cost savings for justice systems. So, for example, by looking at census data in a country, we can understand where populations are located and then be able to kind of adjust financial resources with partner countries to what those needs are. And so I think we understand and are working with partner governments to understand that that is really needed for economic development. And I think many of the countries where we work, they want to see improvements in rule of law because they want investments. They want economic improvements. We are speaking with Miranda Jolicure. She is team lead for justice, human rights and security at the U.S. Agency for International Development. So give us an example of the type of project that could result in this and in the people-centered justice. And what are the types of data you might collect in pursuit of that? You mentioned census data, for example. I think what people-centered justice asks first and foremost is uh, what people want and and need when they seek justice, and that could be criminal, civil, or administrative. So we may conduct something that we call a justice need survey, and those have been done in many countries where that at the baseline kind of identifies what those needs and wants are. And then we work with post-partner country governments and we analyze what that data tells us, what evidence approaches tell us. And then what are most viable solutions? And what we like to say is there are multiple pathways of justice. So it may not exist only in a formal system. So I'll give you an example from when I worked in Kosovo. We reviewed a number of cases within the courts. The court's were really having a hard time because they were so overloaded with a backlog of cases. We determined together with court officials and judicial officials that the predominant need were property cases. Those were uncontentious property cases. So we worked with officials to understand that there was a possible solution outside of the formal justice system to help people resolve those property needs. We know in West Africa, for example, we've worked on traditional justice where people have resolved their needs for a long time through traditional justice. And we know that with 5.1 billion justice needs, we have to look at a wider lens because justice systems aren't financially equipped and able to meet all of the needs that are out there. In other words, there might be a legal framework which is designed to deliver justice in a given nation, but somewhere along the line, it actually doesn't get delivered by the system. And so USAID then would help those countries develop the delivery system for lack of a better word, such that the justice that might have been envisioned by the country's founders or its constitution writers actually does get delivered. Is that a fair way to put it? I think it's a fair way to put it. I think also when we talk about legal frameworks, you know, in some countries there has been a legal culture for quite a long time. And I think it's being able to look at that legal culture that may exist informally, formal legal frameworks, and how do we look at that by using data to really drive and understand what people need, what they want, and try to meet those needs. And we know that reduces conflict around the world. It's a prevention measure, in fact, for many of the other uh, humanitarian and development work that we do globally. Because in many countries, there might be a cultural or religious or tribal tradition that exists overlaid on whatever the modern legal structure they might have. And therefore, 
in some eyes, justice gets delivered, but it looks pretty grotesque sometimes, actually, from our standpoint. I think that's correct. I think we can look at a number of different justice traditions, whether you call them an overlay or an underlay. I think there are systems that exist from colonial powers that they might argue some, you know, religious meat. So I think there are different ways. I think what we understand is that there's a cultural premise for justice that exists. And as USAID, we never want a legal, there's no legal transplant. We don't say this is what works in the United States. Let's, let's bring this overseas. I think it's really working with those countries to understand what people want and need. And I think people-centered justice, most importantly, gives us an avenue to focus on marginalized people. So if we are talking about women overseas, their wants and needs may be the need for a daycare in court so they can actually access the justice system, but they're unable to otherwise. Interesting. So I guess that you could add to women many other types of communities, including, say, minority communities within that context of that nation that often don't quite partake fully in justice delivery and outcomes. Absolutely. Um, We know in many countries where we work, uh, I was most recently in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, indigenous communities that never had access to the formal system, or if they did have access to the formal system, it was under um, military courts where they were being prosecuted for violating a variety of infractions. And I think this gives us the ability to really sit down with those communities, listen to what it is that they need, and be able to respond with them. Miranda Jolicure is team lead for Justice, Human Rights, and Security at the U.S. Agency for International Development. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Tom. This has been great. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more about the new policy at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress has a decidedly nuts and bolts week ahead. But first, a lawsuit against the Air Force on behalf of the deaf and hard of hearing. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Equal Employment Opportunity Commission has allowed a class action lawsuit against the Air Force to move forward. Plaintiffs are a group of current, former, and prospective civilian employees who are deaf or hearing impaired. They claim the Air Force did not provide basic accommodations required by law. For more about the case, Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Sean Batulier, senior staff attorney at Disability Rights Advocates, and attorney Wendy Musell. Sarah Weimer, who uh, was an attorney at the Nellis Air Force Base, reached out to us regarding, you know, some of the pervasive problems she'd been having getting accommodations. You know, she had, it had taken months and months just to get something as basic as a video phone so she could make phone calls to other people in the Air Force as as part of her job, you know, something that she needs to do every day as part of her job. And the Air Force couldn't even do something as simple as getting that to work. And, you know, she also, she had on multiple occasions requested um, ASL interpretation or CART interpretation, which is essentially like transcription of conversations that are happening and had repeatedly been refused, had been told that there was no money for that, despite, you know, the Air Force having billions and billions of dollars at its disposal. 
And she had also realized in the course of having these issues that she wasn't alone, that there were people all over the Air Force at all different bases who were having the same problems and that this was really a systemic issue all across the Air Force, no matter what base you were at, no matter who your supervisor was, that there were just these these real issues with getting basic accommodations and accommodations that other employers of all sizes provide every day to deaf employees. And Wendy, how did you get involved in this? Sean reached out to me um, from Disability Rights Advocates and asked if my firm would be interested in assisting representing the federal workers in the case. The federal system is quite Byzantine. They're very short deadlines. Um, For example, if an individual has been subjected to discrimination in the workplace, they have 45 days, if you can believe it, to raise those complaints. And the whole process, in my opinion, is not user-friendly for those employees who have the bravery to come forward and raise these issues and ask that the government live up to what they're supposed to be, which is be a model employer. There are regulations that state the federal government is supposed to not only comply with the law, but be a model employer. And this clearly was not happening. So we were thrilled to join disability rights advocates. They're a leader um, in making sure that uh, systemic issues regarding disability rights are enforced. And we have a lot of experience in representing federal workers for discrimination cases. So we thought joining forces to ensure that systemic change at the Air Force becomes a reality. And one of the things with the Air Force, which I I think is particularly egregious, is a lot of employees who are civilians used to be enlisted um, with the Air Force and may have lost some of their hearing because of the work that they did serving our country. So when those same people come over to be civilian workers and continue to serve our country and then are not provided with very basic accommodations and frankly, the dignity that they deserve just as an employee, but also as somebody who's doing such important work, I think that deserves attention and it deserves change. So talk to me a little bit about the process that you went through. The EEOC appeals court just affirmed the case and has issued a decision in your favor. What can you tell me about what the next step is and what the EEOC route uh, signifies and the way that you took it? What happens when an employee makes a, a complaint is they have to go through a whole internal process, which can take a long time before you even have the opportunity to go to the EEOC for adjudication. And our clients, the class agents, did that. It took them, even before we got to the EEOC, sometimes years, in which they weren't even, in some cases, provided accommodations for that process. So you can imagine if you're deaf and you want to make an EEO complaint and the Air Force doesn't even have accommodations so that you can make an EEO complaint, and yet it's required as a matter of law. So after they went through the internal processes, we then filed with the EEOC. The EEOC was pending there for a few years, first at the San Francisco office and then at the Los Angeles office. We had numerous rounds of briefing and we provided mountains of evidence that show that there's systemic problems with the Air Force providing these basic accommodations. We were thrilled with the decision by the administrative judge who very correctly saw that there are systemic problems 
that need to be addressed as it relates to civilians, applicants, employees, and former employees, and that this case can proceed on a class basis with the class covering the entire United States and some bases that would be abroad, as well as the number of class members is estimated either over 700 and could be as much as nearly 2,600 members currently. So the Air Force did appeal that decision. The Office of Federal Operations, which is the appellate court of the EEOC, made this recent decision, which we're thrilled, affirming the class certification and saying that the case can continue on a class basis and that the case should go back to the Los Angeles office of the EEOC and proceed on a class basis. Additionally, there had been a persistent problem with the Air Force not complying with the court's rules. This was noted in the decision that the Air Force simply apparently considered itself above the law, not only with providing reasonable accommodations under the Rehabilitation Act, which is the law that is very similar to the Americans with Disabilities Act, but applies to federal employees. But they also felt they were above the law as it relates to complying with discovery obligations and violated order after order after order. And so the Office of Federal Operations, the OFO, had also required that they respond to one of the last orders that had been violated to provide additional documents that they had failed to provide. So our hope is this case can continue as expeditiously as possible <laughs> so that we can make the change that these employees so deeply deserve. Yeah, Sean, that provides us a perfect segue into the question I was going to ask you, which is what are you all hoping to achieve with this? You know, it's a lawsuit. So obviously, you know, there might be some sort of maybe compensation involved or something. But I think that the broader goal here is for the change that Wendy just mentioned. What uh, from the disability rights advocates point of view are you all hoping for? Yeah, I think that's exactly right, that the broader goal is that kind of change. That's really what our clients are in it for. They certainly have suffered some financial consequences. They've had their careers derailed. A couple of them have had to leave the Air Force because they just couldn't take going into work every day and not getting the sort of basic things that they needed to do their jobs. But all of them are really motivated to change things for other people and make sure that this doesn't happen again, you know? So in terms of what that looks like concretely, one thing we're pushing for is for the Air Force to implement centralized funding for accommodations so that it's not a question of, you know, does your little individual unit have the money right now to, let's say, hire an interpreter, but really looking at does the Air Force as a whole have the money? And that the answer to that is always pretty much going to be yes, right? And that's actually, that is how it's supposed to work. That is how the law is written, that you look to the organization as a whole when determining whether whether they can afford a particular thing. So that's one piece, the funding piece, because a lot of accommodations were just being denied because of funding or being delayed because of all the various bureaucratic levels that things had to go through. There are other things like, so providing technology, there are consistent problems that the Air Force knows about with getting things like video phones or captioned telephones so that an employee going into the job can actually just make a simple phone call. 
So I think resolving those issues, making sure that the Air Force has a streamlined process for getting basic technology to work. There are issues for employees who have security clearances. The Air Force doesn't have interpreters who have security clearances. Mm. So you have people who, because of their jobs, have to handle sensitive materials, and they just have no way of doing that no way of doing that portion of their job because they can't get these accommodations. There are persistent problems with training materials. So like the Air Force will have required trainings where it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, watch this video and answer these questions or whatever. Those videos are not captioned, pretty consistently not captioned. So deaf employees can't engage in in trainings. So really, I mean, that's a lot of detailed stuff. What we're really looking for is systemic change to ensure that deaf employees can do their jobs just like any other employee. And none of this, none of this, I, I you know, I, I kind of alluded to this earlier. None of this is very revolutionary. This is stuff that other employers do all the time. There's no reason the Air Force can't. Yeah, on that, I mean, we're not, you know, insinuating that obviously the Air Force doesn't want to be able to tap into the talent pool of folks who just are, are disabled. So is it just that, you know, if from hearing the Air Force saying it was a budgetary concern was really their only concern? And it just what held them back, I guess, from taking these, as you mentioned, seem to be pretty simple steps. You know, we don't know. We don't know. I can't speak for the Air Force and what the Air Force's motivations are and what has been holding them back. You know, one thing we learned in the course of this case from their former head disability program manager, someone who served in that capacity for eight years, is that she recognized these systemic issues and she tried over and over and over and over again to make change and just hit a wall. So there seems to be just some bureaucratic inertia, some sense of, you know, this is just the way that we do things and we're not going to change. Probably some degree of, you know, this is not a priority. And we're really hoping and that this decision and this case will finally shake that loose and get the Air Force to do what it should have been doing all along. Wendy, from a, and you'll get the last word here, from the law perspective, how is the law not been applicable? A federal agency as big as the Air Force has been able to skate by with not conforming to it. Well, they've been subject to these requirements of the law and from our perspective have been violating it for years um, while having absolute notice of the problems that are persistent across their the entire Air Force for civilian workers. And it's, you know, for federal em employers, they are subject to the same laws. Nobody is above the law. We don't have a monarchy which exempts itself, generally speaking. And so the federal government is subject to the same laws and they have to abide by them just like everyone else. And we're simply saying, do the right thing, follow the law, and in fact, be the model that you're supposed to be. And we're hopeful that for other agencies, which have decided, despite the fact that they've had decades and decades to come into compliance, simply to violate the law and to ignore the rights of disabled employees and specifically deaf or hard of hearing employees that they take notice that there are employees who are brave enough to come forward to hold them to account and there are law firms 
um, and disability rights organizations that will hold their feet to the fire. Wendy Musell is a plaintiff's attorney in Oakland, California. Sean Batulier is a senior staff attorney for disability rights advocates. Federal News Network has asked the Air Force for comment on the case. Haven't gotten a response yet. You can find this interview fully transcribed at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Still to come, Congress has a decidedly nuts and bolts week ahead. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to the Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Congress last week took up several issues close to the federal bureaucracy. The Small Business Administration and its struggles with defaulted COVID loans, Veterans Affairs and its troubled electronic health record project, the GAO's high-risk list. With what we can expect in the week ahead, we turn to CBS congressional correspondent Scott McFarland. Scott, good to have you with us. Oh, it's good to be here. Thank you. And what's the week going to look like in Congress? They are both still in session after, you know, some time off earlier. Yeah, it's going to be one of those weeks where you can count the hearings and meetings by the dozen, (laughs) not on one hand. There'll be some hearings that are more messaging hearings for the Republican majority. They're going to bring in teacher unions and school officials to talk about the school closures during the COVID-19 pandemic. They're going to talk about the Biden administration spending, some of the budgets that are likely to come through the Appropriations Committee. But more than anything in the U.S. House, there is one singular thing that's going to drive the week and drive the agenda. Can the House pass this Republican debt ceiling plan, which in addition to raising the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion and or through March 2024, would scale back spending to 2022 levels, some of the discretionary spending issues and some of the agencies that are non-military That's a controversial proposition, and it's unclear if they can get 218 Republican votes, notwithstanding the fact that that bill has no future in the U.S. Senate. All of this really is an ominous warning that the debt ceiling limit, the risk of default, is probably just two or three months away, and there seems to be no path ahead. Right. And one of the things they were talking about, I think, in relation to that proposal, the $1.5 trillion raise in it, was the work for welfare kind of idea. And that would seem to be a federal and a state issue. Yeah, and not an easy one to navigate. Putting in work requirements requires any number of levels of approval politically and administratively. I don't see a path forward to that becoming law. So it brings us back to the basic question here is, Where are we in these talks? What's the possibility of actually having talks to prevent a breach of the debt ceiling and a cataclysmic impact on the U.S. economy? Right now, as this week unfolds, the House Republicans are trying to debate with themselves what they would support in a messaging bill to give them leverage for potential future talks with President Biden. If they can't even pass this, it's unclear what the road ahead is in the House. And you have to have the House's approval to raise the debt ceiling. And last year, when they were trying to get to a 2023 operating budget for the federal government, there was the so-called Four Corners talks, you know, the House and Senate Republican and Democratic appropriators. Is there any kind of equivalent to that, those Four Corners, for the debt ceiling talks that maybe some cooler heads can get together and actually come up with something people could live with? Yeah, I think that's a logical next step. If this vote fails in the U.S. House, or even if it passes, ultimately, there's going to have to be some bipartisan coalition that forms somehow, some way. 
There's going to have to be. There's no other way to do it. And the four corners is a pretty appropriate place to do it, having all the appropriators in the same room, because they're the ones who can help control the spending. Just one unrelated, but I think historic note is also this year, the four corners are all women for the first time. The top appropriators for both parties and both chambers are all women. And this may end up ultimately being in the Appropriations Committee's hands. And you're going to have to find some patchwork of Democrats and Republicans who can work together, but also get something through together into law. We're speaking with Scott McFarland, the congressional correspondent for CBS. And this all stands in the way of any meaningful committee work on actual appropriations for 2024. I mean, the White House proposal is out. That seems to have been forgotten about at this point. The appropriations bills or the appropriations requests, I should say, are being discussed this week. There'll be hearings where agency heads will come in and talk about what they need for spending in the year ahead. We also know the Capitol Police chief appears before the Senate Appropriations Committee Tuesday to talk about what his budget needs are. And you can expect him to ask for a rather robust increase in spending. They want to hire hundreds more officers and help provide more gear and equipment and more readiness to prevent another crisis. So we're talking about the appropriations process. To a degree, it's kind of on schedule, but there's no sense of how the appropriations process is going to function in a divided Congress that at this point can't even figure out how to raise the debt ceiling. Plus, there are some specific members that are, I hate to use the word, in play, but we don't know the future of Dianne Feinstein, for example, and Senator Fetterman from Pennsylvania is not looking like he's totally in command these days. Does that have any effect on this, or does it push things further down? I think every absent vote has an effect when it's a 51-49 Senate. I mean, they're having struggles, as last week concluded, getting the labor secretary nomination through because not all the Democrats are present or willing to vocalize their support. Judge confirmations are at risk of being stalled. So now let's put in the more choppier waters of trying to raise the debt ceiling and all the political impacts that come with it. Yeah, that's a variable. That's a problem. And I think to a degree, it's one of the variables and one of the problems moving forward. We're getting close to a time where the stock markets are going to start reacting to the uncertainty. That could be imminent. Right. And there's another wild card that seems to have gotten thrown in late last week, and that is resurrection of the Green New Deal. I thought that was all in the infrastructure bill from last year, but they're bringing that up afresh and a whole parade of Democratic senators in favor of that, which the numbers are kind of hard to fathom, actually, with what they would spend. Yeah. And at the same time, you have in this Republican debt ceiling proposal, which gets debated this week, a call to pull back some of the clean energy money as a way of cutting costs. That was a clear message from the Republicans that they believed the winning issue for them to try to scale back green investments. I mean, you're talking about two different sides in a divided Congress. At times, aren't even speaking the same language. Forget about being on the same wavelength. I mean, they're diametrically opposed on issues that they're going to have to be in lockstep on before the X date of this debt ceiling arrives. And there are a lot of nuts and bolts little bills floating around. I just see a release the other day that one of the Republican members on the Veterans Affairs subcommittees has three bills to improve veterans compensation, Veterans Benefits Improvement Act. Things like that are floating around. Do they have any chance, you know, that are, again, what I call nuts and bolts changes for the federal bureaucracy? They seem to get lost in the shuffle here. 
I think that's one of the safe havens, uh, even at a politically toxic moment. The Veterans Affairs Committees, House and Senate. The Armed Services Committees, House and Senate, where you do see a coalition of bipartisan groups forming on different issues and legislation to get the support of both parties. Yeah, I think the nuts and bolts bills when they involve veterans, veteran funding, veteran medical center, community clinic funds, research, benefits, those are the types of things that can form a coalition and can see the light of day. Question is, on what train do they hitch their car? Will the standalone veterans bill pass both the House and the Senate, this Congress? It's possible. Or do they put that into something bigger? It's something that may fly through with other things attached. I think those are the types of things that can still move. It's just a matter of when and how. Yeah, that NDAA is getting to be like a two-mile freight train in recent years, and it keeps picking yeah. up more and more a cars. A last-minute freight train moving real fast. Moving real fast. And, you know, a few weeks ago, they were all in a lather on the hill about TikTok and so on, and that kind of faded away. And then last week, we had the whole Discord disclosure with respect to those classified documents. Is that still on their radar, or is that just another kerfuffle and on to the money? Let me start with TikTok, because TikTok is going to yield some legislation. The House Energy and Commerce Committee chair is drafting what she characterizes as a targeted, narrow ban of TikTok. That's Congresswoman Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington State. She expects to have that out sometime in May. And there is some, at least there was, some momentum behind bills that reign in TikTok. So they're still moving forward with the legislation, even though it seems to have collapsed out of the news cycle. And Discord, that's whetting the appetite of congressional oversight in a way that uh, is not going to go away tomorrow. It's not going to go away next week. Multiple House committees want reviews into not only how secrets made their way onto a gaming platform, how somebody so young with a National Guard outfit in New England could get access to these state secrets, but also where was the oversight internally in the administration? I think you're going to see multiple congressional committees still want a piece of that, and that's not going away anytime soon. Scott McFarland is congressional correspondent for CBS. Hey, thanks so much for joining me. Absolutely. Have a great week. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Many young Americans have misconceptions about the government's policies for marijuana use and security clearance eligibility. That's from a report released last week on 420, and that date is something of a national pot day. Regardless, the confusion might be stopping some young professionals from starting a career in national security. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday joins me with the latest. And tell us who issued this report and what it specifically found. Sure. This is a survey that was actually issued by Clearance Jobs, the Clearance Jobs website, and the Intelligence and National Security Foundation. So two pretty reputable outfits there did a survey Uh, They got 905 respondents from people aged 18 to 30 currently living or attending school in Virginia, Maryland, Washington, D.C., California, Florida, Texas, and Colorado. Big states with a lot of cleared jobs. And essentially, 55% of the respondents in that group said they would consider applying for a job that requires a security clearance, and 24% were maybe. But more than half of those polled said that their perception of screening requirements would 
prevent them from applying for a clearance. That includes 21% who said they wouldn't apply because they would need to report prior drug use or drug and alcohol use. And that includes marijuana as well. Uh, 9% of the respondents incorrectly said people who hold a security clearance are actually able to use marijuana. And 31% said it would be okay in a state where it's legal. And that's obviously not the case. Only 23% were aware of the policy that while past marijuana use is a factor, it shouldn't be the sole disqualifying factor in deciding whether to grant a clearance. And just a third were aware that once you get a clearance, you're not allowed to use marijuana or you put that clearance at risk. Wow. When people were informed of the policy that it's not a determinant, then what do they say? So once they were informed of the correct policies, 25% of respondents said the ban on marijuana use would prevent them from seeking a cleared position. And 18% said they would not stop using marijuana to increase the likelihood that they'll be granted a clearance. So there's a good chunk of people who, once they're informed of the correct policies, say, eh, I, I don't think I'll apply for a government job that requires a security clearance. Uh, on the same token, about a third said that they would actually st- stop using and, and start getting themselves ready to potentially get a clearance once they were informed of the fact that basically they just have to stop using before they get a cleared position. Right. So you can have used it in the past. You've got to stop using it before applying. And once you get clearance, you got to stay off it, basically. Essentially. And, and, you know, intelligence leaders have recognized that there's some confusion around, you know, there were historically strict policies on past marijuana use. And of course, there's a rising tide of states that are legalizing marijuana, even though it's illegal federally. And there's also a rising tide of Americans who are using marijuana. Recent poll found 48% of Americans reported trying marijuana at least once in their lifetime. So they've issued clarifying guidance, essentially saying what we just laid out. While its past use can be a factor, agencies shouldn't just disqualify someone because someone used marijuana in college. Yeah, that's against federal law, but it shouldn't be the sole disqualifying reason. There's a practical matter here, too. If you used it 10 years ago or five years ago, it's not going to show up in a test. And so just say no. You never did. Uh, that's my it's, take. It's true, but you, you, are, you are encouraged to be truthful on these forms, of course. And if you're going to get an SCI sure. clearance, you will get polygraphed, although I'm not sure if they actually ask questions about weed during that polygraph. Yeah, and somebody will use chat APT or whatever that thing is called and create a younger version of you in a deep fake toking away or something and send that into your agency and how do you disprove that one all right so the intelligence community is trying to clarify the policies how are they getting the word out and making sure people do understand the facts yeah so in 2021 the office of the director of national intelligence issued this clarifying guidance basically telling agencies that they should use the whole person concept when deciding whether to grant a security clearance and that includes past marijuana use. So while someone may have used marijuana in the past, they can mitigate that according to this guidance by pointing to, you know, the frequency of use if it wasn't that frequent. And they can also demonstrate that future use is unlikely to recur. So that's a way that you can kind of get over this issue during the clearance application process. Director of National Intelligence Avril Haines has also come out and said bluntly 
that we want to make sure we're not disqualifying people solely for the purpose of using weed, especially now that many states have legalized or decriminalized it. But she also emphasized that current policy is that folks are expected to follow federal laws once they're in a trusted position. Any other steps that the intelligence community or INSA are taking to blow the smoke away, you might say? Yeah, well, it's a little hazy right now, obviously. And so I think one thing folks are saying is there needs to be more education about this issue. But it also is a little bit of a gray area. As you can tell from my explanation about the guidance, it's a little bit like, well, you can, but you need to make sure Sure. that you're not going to do it anymore. And some agencies apply it differently. Congress has actually considered some efforts to basically say in law, prior marijuana use can't be the sole disqualifying factor for a security clearance applicant. But that proposal from Senator Ron Wyden was actually shot down last year in the intelligence authorization bill. We'll see if that gets revived and this gets cleared up a little bit in law as well. Well, this sounds like a good case for a new joint task force. I think that's a good idea, Tommy. I think you can keep these puns going, too, if you get one of those. All right. Anything else we need to know from the survey? One interesting thing, and it's not related to marijuana, but it's actually that 20 percent of these young people who are surveyed said needing to report mental health struggles or their their perception that they would need to report mental health struggles would actually stop them from applying for clearance. And that's a pretty big deal. You know, officials in recent years have sought to reduce the stigma around seeking mental health treatment in the intelligence community, saying, you know, it's very, very, very unlikely for it to put your clearance at risk unless you're being treated for some condition that requires hospitalization. But still, one in five young people have this perception that mental health struggles would preclude them from getting a clearance. So that's another data point to consider here. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday, thanks so much. All right, you got it, Tom. And check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin. 